before we get into our study, um, I wanted to ask for your prayers for the next few days. As Matt mentioned, we're hosting a conference here. Um, the part of the family of churches that we're a part of, Calvary Chapel, um, it's only about a 40-year-old movement. And it was born during what was called the suburban exodus. And so the majority of Calvary chapels that have sprung out of this movement, the majority of churches have kind of followed that exodus and now are in the fringes of the largest cities in the country. Internationally, it's a little bit different because why would you plant a church in the recesses of France when you could plant it in Paris? Um, but nonetheless, there's a great need in our day both to emphasize the importance of planting in cities where the majority of not just Americans but human beings live by 2050, 80% of the world will live in urban areas. There's never been a point in history where that's been true. Um, and then as well as develop a network of support for the pastors who are currently working in the city. So we're hosting about 25 pastors from all over the country and Canada um, on Monday and Tuesday just to talk about these things. Um, I'd appreciate your prayers for the conference as a whole. It's our inaugural thing. We're kind of feeling our way out on this thing. Um, pray for all who are attending. I also would appreciate your prayers for me. For years, I've complained about conferences that take place on Mondays and Tuesdays because come Monday morning, I'm pretty much spent. Uh, and I just realized that I've done the same thing to myself. Um, and so I'd appreciate your prayer just that God would give me the strength and that I can actually be present as host over the next few days. Um, we're going to go ahead and get into our study this morning. We've been working through a series on 1 Corinthians 15, which we've labeled the reality of the resurrection. If you have a Bible this morning, please open it up to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. If you're in need of a Bible to read along, there should be one very nearby you in the back of a pew, and you can use the index at the front to find Paul's letter uh, known as 1 Corinthians. Paul, our author this morning, is a logic-oriented writer. Generally, his books make an argument, and when it changes topics, it just changes to a new argument. He's um, not argumentative in the sense of kind of a pit bull always fighting, but argumentative in the sense of always trying to connect A to B, always trying to lay a foundation and build upon it. Um, that actually makes, for me, his letters relatively readable, because he, sometimes he's easy to follow. Um, what's going on in 1 Corinthians 15 is the same thing. He's making an argument. The church in the city of Corinth that Paul had planted somehow is starting to be open to a new understanding of Christian teaching. Uh, generally, the phrase new understanding of Christian, Christian teaching is not a positive statement. As Paul has reiterated here, Christianity is something that has been received and handed down. It begins with the facts of what Jesus has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's where he starts. And the fact that Jesus has raised from the dead and seen by many witnesses directly challenges this new understanding in the church of Corinth that there isn't a future bodily resurrection. That whatever Christianity is, it's compatible with the Greek philosophy of the spiritualness of what's inside you and the grossness of the externals of life. 
Uh, and, and so they're starting to over-adapt. In other words, they're starting to compromise with this other belief, okay? Um, and so he lays out the facts again, and then he just says, look, if you're what you're saying is true, here's what it does to Christianity, and effectively what he shows is that it guts it. It removes the entire central focal point, that without the resurrection, if Jesus isn't currently alive, then there is no Christianity to speak of. And then, as we saw last week, um, he shows that since Christ has been raised from the dead, not only does that mean that Christianity is something of value, not only does that mean that God's promises are yes and amen, that there's truth and, uh, and hope, as Ben mentioned this morning, but also that in the same way that Christ has been raised, so also we have that expectation. That what he did, he did for all who would believe in him. We've been grafted into that future, okay? So his future is now our future. Where he goes now is to talk about how that future hope impacts our present difficulties, do you know what tempering is? We don't really have a blacksmith culture unless you go to Ballard. There's a handful of blacksmiths in Ballard. Um, but tempering is when you take a metal that on its own is relatively destructible. It's not terribly strong. And tempering uses processes of pressure, pressure and heat uh, to take that and fortify it, make it stronger, okay? A tempered blade can stand up to the fight, okay? What we're talking about this morning is how the resurrection fortifies us for specifically the Christian life. Not just fortifies us for life. I'm not barely talking about this morning the, the idea of Christianity as a crutch. Although most of us, seeing ourselves as sinners, go, yeah, I need that. I'm okay with being... Uh, with recognizing I have a limp and leaning on someone else for help because that's the truth, that's the reality. This is more than this. This isn't just um, Jesus to supplement the American dream. This is the resurrection makes the Christian life in particular worth living. Okay. So let's read the passage through. We'll pray and we'll look at the, the fortifying nature of the resurrection to come. Verse 29. Otherwise... What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray. God, if all you've called us to is just the human life, if we are just merely human, and called to a merely human destiny, then maybe these things don't matter so much. Maybe it's just something to believe in, something that makes us happy, something that gives us warm fuzzies. But if, if the resurrection fortifies us for the real 
life of service of God, for the difficulties and challenge of following you, if it prepares us for the promise you gave that all who follow Jesus Christ will suffer persecution, Lord, then we need this. It's not secondary. It's not a fringe issue. It's not a debatable. It is the center. It is the core. It is our unshakable hope as Christians. I pray that you would not merely teach us what these words mean this morning, but that you would plant them deep in our being, that they would shape us as Christians, that they would draw us into uh, incomprehensible risks if the dead are not raised. I ask this in your name. Amen. Paul's passage here can be broken down into three easy sections. Like I said, he's a logical speaker. And so I want you to notice that the way that this passage breaks down this morning is basically in pronouns. It starts with they, and then with we, and it finishes with you. He's going to talk about three different groups. In other words, he takes two illustrations, they and we, and then applies it to the you, to the Corinthian church. Applies it to us this morning, okay? And the opener he uses here is a difficult one. Notice what it says in verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Most of us would go, I don't know, Paul. What do they mean? We don't have a Christian practice of whatever this is, baptizing on behalf of the dead. Now, if you just crack open the commentaries from church history, you will find no less than 40 possible interpretations of what this means. Okay, what that means when you find so many interpretations, is there's really not a good one. We really don't know, okay? And that's one of the thing, hard and difficult things about um, reading the Bible as applicable for today is we don't always know what was going on. There's another place in this letter when Paul is talking about head coverings, which is incompre incomprehensible enough for us, and he says that basically they need to do this for the sake of the angels, and we go, okay, great, Paul. I wish you had said a little bit more about that, but he moves on to the next topic. It's a difficulty. However, there's a difference between there are parts we don't know and there are parts we know for sure, okay? There's a difference between we don't understand all of this and we can't understand it at all. And I want to show you what I mean this morning because I want you to notice that when he talks about this practice, we can make a couple of baseline observations. Let's read his full statement in verse 29 on it again, and then I'll show you. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay, the first observation I want to make for you this morning is that Paul knows what he's talking about. Right? That's why Paul brings it up. When he refers to those who are being baptized on behalf of the dead, he's not making up something. He's referring to something that he could point to. Right? In the same way. Obviously, the church in Corinth also knows what Paul is talking about. Right? Would you agree? Because he's trying to make an argument. He's trying to prove a point. And so he says exhibit A. And the idea here is that he's holding up the plastic bag and everybody in the church can see that piece of evidence. Right? It's something that both Paul and the church in Corinth know that's going on. But here's the second point, and this one's more important. According to the pronouns here, this is not a practice of Paul, right? He says, why do they, not we? And I know he knows the word we because he's just about to use it. Like I said, this passage easily breaks down into they, we, and you, okay? Second, because he says they, we know he's not talking about the church in Corinth. 
okay? Whatever this practice is, it's not practiced by the apostle himself or the church he planted. Now, it still leaves us with questions. What could it possibly mean, okay? This is, I think, the most likely. The most likely is to just read it as simply what it says, that some people were being baptized on behalf of the dead, okay? In other words, and I think you can probably imagine this, some people, and maybe they were catchermen, okay, people who were being introduced to Christianity but hadn't been fully initiated. They were growing in their belief in Christ but hadn't entered into church membership through the practice of baptism and an accident happens or they get sick and they pass away. Maybe some people felt the need to complete the process on behalf of these people who were never baptized. Maybe that's what's going on, okay? But I don't know. Either way, though, this is not a biblical practice. It's not a practice of the early church. In fact, even the early church fathers writing just a mere few generations after this passage kind of scratch their heads. It's not until late in the second century and early in the third that we find people doing this practice and all of them are labeled as heretics, okay? It's Marcion, okay? Marcion was this guy who said, I don't really like the Jewishness of the Bible, so let's forget the Old Testament. Let's scrub out the book of Hebrews. Let's delete the Gospel of Matthew and let's clip anything else out that's too Jewish for me, okay? His group, they took up this practice. It, I mean, I, I almost want to applaud him because at least he found some part of the Bible that he was willing to obey. Unfortunately, it's, it's a part that's not Christian practice. But whatever this is, Paul is still trying to make a point. And I think what he's doing here is a little bit goading. What he's doing here is he's saying, look, even the crazy people, the ones who baptize people for the dead, even they understand the resurrection, okay? He's taking a practice that is at the very least questionable. He doesn't give us a positive or a negative. At the very least questionable, and he says, why do they do this weird thing? Even they get the core, the center. Let's take baptism for a second, especially appropriate today since we're having a baptism as a church. You see, Jesus gave us two things, called us to do two things as Christians that are symbolic as nature, that are sacraments, a word that just means a living picture of a spiritual reality, okay? Um, there is communion, which we partake of in this church every week, and it reminds us that Christ has died on our behalf. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us, and we partake of that death, and we experience the benefits and the consequence of that death in communion. So communion is about Jesus' death for us. Baptism, however, is about our death in Jesus. Baptism is about identification. And so in this church, when we do a baptism, as we will today, we take someone out into the water, and we fully submerge them into the water, and we bring them back up because it signifies, it pictures Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection. In fact, we, um, we get a good understanding of this idea of what baptism is about when Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 6. And he says, don't you know that as many have been baptized in Christ have died with Christ? In other words, Paul says, if you're a Christian, the historicity of the cross of Christ is not merely something that happened to Jesus. 
It's something you've been miraculously and spiritually been grafted into, and it's in some sense your death as well. And in the midst of that death is also the promise of resurrection. In the same way that Jesus didn't stay dead, your hope as a Christian, as represented in baptism, is that death is no longer the victor, as we talked about last week. And so he points to this practice, and he points to even a misuse of it, and he says, if the dead are not raised, if there's no hope after death for Christians, then baptism loses its whole significance. If, if we're going to baptize and there's no resurrection of the dead, then just keep them under. Leave them there and let them drown. Because that's all there was. That's all there is. That's all there will ever be. We're just speeding up the process. But we believe in resurrection. We believe in newness of life. We believe that there's a future, full body, complete removal of sin, resurrection available to us as Christians. And even our belief that we can overcome sin in the present is rooted in that reality. That that dawn is dawning and that the sun is currently reflecting on our faces. Okay. And so he says, how can you make sense of your calling in your life as your Christian? As uh, recognize the life of a Christian is between two great events. It starts with the resurrection of Jesus, but it doesn't end until Jesus returns. Till the consummation of all things. Till the setting up of an eternal kingdom. Till the resurrection of our bodies. If you delete the ending then we're just living some sort of awkward epilogue. No, that's the, what Paul wants to point out is, no, this is all heading somewhere. There is a true and undeniable hope, and it changes the way we live. So then he shifts from why do they to why do we? And I want you to notice what he says here. He says here in verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? Now, when he says we here, he's probably referring to himself and his team or himself and the apostles. He may even be broadly referring to we as Christians in general. We know because of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that there were difficult times even in the city of Corinth because he gives them advice about being married in that context. And he says, hey, if you're engaged right now in the heat of what was most likely a famine but could have been the early outbreak of persecution against Christians... If it's not happening now in the, uh, in the 50s of the first century, by the end of the 50s, it definitely is. So we could be on the cusp of that. Whatever it is he's talking about, he says, you might want to consider not getting married because then you've got to think about your family in famine times. Then you've got to think about your children and the consequence of taking a stand for Christ and losing your life and leaving them orphans, okay? Whatever it is, he may hear say, we... Why are we in danger every hour? But most likely, I think he's probably just talking about him and the other apostles. Okay, Paul's life was difficult. It was one of, as he puts it here, constant danger. In fact, notice he doesn't say, why are we in danger every day? But he actually says every hour. Okay, the most constant aspect of his circumstance is danger. He's always living in the full threat level red reality. Okay. You can see some of this in the book of Acts. There's an occasion, for example, where Paul is preaching in a small town, and the town just breaks out, freaks out. There's a mob. They drag him outside of the city, and they try and stone him to death. And he survives. But it's still an awful thing to go through. 
in fact, he ends up being imprisoned in Jerusalem and spends the second half of the book of Acts on his way to Rome to stand before the emperor constantly in chains, okay? A prisoner for a large portion of his life. But the place where we get the greatest picture of what, what's going on in Paul's life is not the book of Acts, but actually the second letter that Paul writes to the church of Corinth. 10% of the things he refers to in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 10% of them do we find in the book of Acts, okay? So there's more to the story. And this is what he says. This is what Paul's life is like. What's happening in 2 Corinthians is that um, some people have come to the church and become so critical of Paul that he finally feels he's got to pull out the big guns and say, okay, you want to know what life is like? He says, you want to know where I boast as opposed to these super apostles who, you know, wear the three-piece suits and demand your, uh, you know, your respect in these types of things? He says, here's the marks of my true apostleship. And what he says is the marks are his suffering. This is, this is the list. This is what life is like for Paul. He says this. He says, in far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This was Paul's life as an apostle. He mentions there many times coming up against governmental authorities and bearing the full consequence of the law, being beaten with rods or whipped with whips, being dragged out, as I mentioned earlier, the city of stone, uh, city in stoned. He mentions the hardships that come with travel in the Mediterranean. Three times he was shipwrecked. I mean, let's be honest. One bad weather cruise and we're never getting on a boat again. Okay? Three times. You know, not just fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice. Three times Paul is shipwrecked. Why is he constantly putting himself in these circumstances? Why doesn't he throw in the towel? Why is it that there's never a time where Paul retires? Because you know how his story ends? Not in some nice, you know, ranch. It ends with his being beheaded because he's thrown in prison again. Okay, the first time the emperor lets him go. He goes out, he ministers some more, and eventually a new emperor comes on the throne, and this time he's put to death. And that wasn't unusual for the apostles. One, one of the original 12 in Paul, one of them, died of old age. All the others were beheaded or crucified. And the one who died of old age, tradition tells us that he was first boiled in oil and then banished to a small island called Patmos, where we find him, this is the Apostle John, writing the book of Revelation. And so Paul says, if there's no resurrection, why do I live in the constant reality of death? Why do I put it all on the table? Why do I risk everything if this is all there is? That's the question that Paul is asking the church in Corinth here. He says, 
He says, I'm in constant, hourly threat of danger. How do you make sense of that? He goes on and he says this in verse 31, I protest, have, um, I protest, brothers, my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Okay? So he basically says, if you want to understand my life, living death is not a bad way to see it. It's a daily experience. This is, by the way, part of the paradigm of what Jesus said the Christian life would look like. What he said is, if anyone seeks to follow me, let him take up his cross daily. Deny himself and follow me. Jesus said that the cross was not only the finish line of his ministry, but it was a reflection of what Christian ministry would be like. And there is a spiritual aspect of that. Okay? Part of what the crucified life looks like for a Christian is, is all sorts of denial. Right? It has to do with our internal battle with sin. It has to do with putting other people first. It doesn't always require the threat of big ticket danger, okay? But it clearly implies the possibility of that. In fact, let me just set the record straight for you. It's easy to forget these things because when we think of Christianity, we think of modern American Christianity. And we think, well, that persecution is over. We think, well, it's not, that danger's not really a part of the paradigm anymore. Did you know that more Christians were martyred in the 20th century than the rest of church history combined? The last hundred years have been the most brutal and bloody for Christians worldwide. So much more, so much so that you can add up every century, all 18 of them prior to that, and still not balance the books. So when Paul says we here, that includes the entire voice of the church that you may not realize is out there, that is driven from their homes, that when they gather for Easter, unlike us, somebody bombs their congregation like happened a few weeks ago, that are called to denounce the Lord that saved them or watch their children killed ahead of them, be beheaded. This reality is real. If there is no resurrection of the dead, if there is no great reversal of these things, then what, what value is Christianity for these folks? And you can reverse engineer that, can't you? Because there's something compelling. There's something amazing about, the people that the, uh, about people that they would be willing to put it all on the line for Christianity. About the fourth century, it became famous to look at the first three centuries of persecution and recognize that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. That the thing that was so compelling, the reason why Christianity went from this kind of shunned minority position in the Roman Empire to being recognized and adopted by the Roman Empire itself is because they were impressed by how Christians died. Because they died with hope and they died with peace and they died with confidence. But there's an insight that Paul gives us here that's important as well. Notice the wording again of verse 31. He says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. Why that weird phrase, by my pride in you? Why does he put it this way? He's showing that one of the reasons it's worth it is because of the Corinthians and other churches like them. Just recognize with me 
that if Paul had thrown in the towel earlier, there is no Corinthian church. In fact, that if this missionary journey hadn't continued, that's a, a link in the chain that leads to your own Christianity. When Paul here has pride in the Corinthian church, he has pride in us standing today because we stand on the backs of these people who have given their life for Christ, of these people who have gone to a place like America, right, who have walked into your life and preached Christ. We really get two ideas here, okay, two things I want you to think about. The first is we see Paul willing to take tremendously big risks, willing constantly to put death on the line as a, as a very probable optional outcome, to take a stand even in prison, to not compromise even though it may have you live another day, right? He couldn't justify and say, well, I can compromise today and then at least tomorrow I'll still be around to preach. No, he drew a hard line here. In fact, he makes this an issue for the church in Corinth, and it's not, not secondary. And the reason, the reason he could do so is because he had this endgame hope in the resurrection. When you read the prophet Joel, Joel is writing to a time in Israel where there has been rapid-fire destruction of crops year after year. And things are getting hard now, right? They hit the bottom of the barrel last year, and there's no barrel this year. And he's writing to them, and you would expect, I would expect anyways, that his message would be one of hope and comfort. It's not. He says the worst is still to come. If you don't repent, if you don't turn around, God is going to continue to discipline Israel. You think you've seen it all. The next plague of locust is not locust at all. It's an army, and it's going to destroy you. And he lays this out, and it's actually a relatively hopeful letter because he says, even here, after years of stubbornness and resistance, if you repent, it's all over. Even here, all God wants is you. And if you return, all of this stops. But he also says something more incredible. He says, if you repent, if you come back, if you turn away from your sin, God will restore the years the locusts have eaten. It's not just that the judgment, just, not just that the punishment will stop it's that it will somehow be reversed. That God will provide in such a way that it will be like that famine never happened. Okay. In a much greater sense, that's what God promises in Jesus Christ. I read you that list of Paul's suffering. Do you know his perspective on it? He says earlier in that same letter, he says, I've come to believe that the, that the tiny sufferings of this life aren't even worthy to be compared to the inestimable weight of glory that is to come how could he do the math on that on that life his body bearing the scars his back covered in scars from being whipped uh you know how could he bear all of that reality and just call it it's not a big thing because it was completely outweighed by the hope of the resurrection listen God can do so much more than restore the years the locusts have eaten. Because of the resurrection, any sacrifice you make in this, life, in this life is not the end of the story. Every once in a while, because it's helpful for me, I play what I call the Christian worst-case scenario game. 
because I, I tend to freak out. I tend to worry. You may have noticed that me and my wife are helicopter parents, and that's partially just because we have five kids. You can, you can parent at a distance when you have one. When you have five, that's not one distance, that's five distance. It's overwhelming. And so we just, we just like a herd of sheep, we keep them together. We're very much like that. But the other reason is because we're relatively afraid. It's a struggle for us. We have a tendency to forget that God is good, that God is in control, that there's nothing I can do to protect my kids anyways, because as much as I can worry about things, I can't stop all of them. That's what makes them worrisome, worrisome, right? And so sometimes I play the Christian worst-case scenario game, and it's really the worst game you can play in one sense. It's only good because of the ending. Because I just think of the worst things that could happen to me and my family, the worst things that could happen to... America or whatever, and I just walk down the line. And things can get pretty bad. I've got a tremendously good pessimist imagination. But after all of the and thens, and after all of the despair, and then Jesus returns, and there's life eternal with him. And then Jesus returns and sets all injustice right. And then Jesus returns and takes the scars left on my life from my sin and the sins of others and completely removes it. And then Jesus returns and he wipes away every tear. That's what I mean by fortification. Knowing the end of the story changes the significance of the story. I know you've all seen too many Nicolas Cage films, but do you remember the film Next? The premise was pretty simple. Nicolas Cage has the ability to see like 15 seconds in the future. And he struggles with the weight and the responsibility of just those 15 seconds. But he recognizes that a gift like that, it compels him to take action. In fact, one of the lines I remember from the movie early on, it's just a cageism, but what he says is basically uh, that knowing the future inevitably changes it. Because you can't be passive. He knows the next 15 seconds. We know the end of all history as Christians. Shouldn't that change the way we live? Shouldn't that impact things? One of the greatest ways it impacts things is that it takes the risks that everybody else says is too much, that you can temper that, you can dial that back a little bit, that this decision is too costly or too dangerous, or what about X, Y, and Z? And it changes that through the incredible inflation of the reality of hope. It changes the way we do our sums on life. It makes sense of those who who lay their lives on the line, not just in dying for Christ, but in living for him, in starving for him, in suffering for him, for enduring for him. But there's another side. When he says, I boast in you, Corinthians, the other thing is the work of following Christ in the midst of that suffering is eternally significant. I want to be honest with you this morning. There are a lot of things in life you can do that are fruitful that are positive, that are good, that are beneficial. But the things that we're talking about this morning, the things that God calls us to in Jesus Christ, leading another person to Jesus, going and telling those who have not heard, taking a stand for Christ and showing that he's worth dying for, they are eternally fruitful. In the non-perishable category, okay? The consequence that that bears on history itself is permanently significant. And so Paul recognizes the existence of the Corinthian church makes suffering worthwhile. Why? 
because they aren't just going to have a better life, they now have an eternal life. What he's, the impact he's made on the church in Corinth is not temporary. It's not a slight improvement. It's a complete course correction. For those two reasons, the Christian life, as we're talking about this morning, is worth living. And without the resurrection, without the hope we have that Jesus is going to return, those two reasons are foolishness. In fact, that's what he says next. He says, verse 32, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought the beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Do you see how he says gain there? He says, what's it worth? When he says here, I fought the beasts at Ephesus, he's probably being metaphorical, but he's surprisingly insightful. Because although at this time, it hadn't become practice to feed Christians to wild animals, it would be in just about 20 years. Here, though, he's recognizing what he talks about in 2 Corinthians, which was just an extreme hardship. A place where he basically says, we almost despaired entirely. Things got so rough, the heat got so hot, even the Apostle Paul almost tapped out. Okay? That's what he's saying here. He's in the midst of this when he's writing Corinth now, and he says, why am I here enduring this if the dead are not raised? But not just why do I endure it, but what do I gain? Of what value is it? Notice what he says next. He says, if the dead are not raised, this is the end of 32, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now this is such a saying, uh, common saying in the ancient world, it's a little bit hard to know where Paul is drawing it from. The Epicureans basically believed this idea, that life is what we make of it, and that's all there is. Once you die, that's game over, and so just enjoy life to the full extent, okay? But also, this is a word-for-word quotation out of the prophet Isaiah. It's something that Isaiah says in Isaiah 22, and here's what's going on when Isaiah is writing, okay? Judgment is coming, and for generations, God has been bringing prophets to warn Israel that the path they're on leads to destruction. And whether seriously or with their tongue firmly planted in cheek, some were starting to say, hey, if judgment is coming, let's just get everything we can until we can't anymore. They basically said, if, if what's coming is a Babylonian ar- army, then we might as well just enjoy the last of our reserves because it's all over anyways. Let us eat, drink, and marry, be merry because tomorrow we die. Okay? It's a weird amalgamation of optimism and pessimism. It's pessimistic about the fate. It's optimistic about what to do in the meantime. Okay. When he uses it in this context in 1 Corinthians, though, he's basically saying, if this is all there is, if this is the whole story, then you should just pursue pleasure and make that your God because death is the end and there's nothing after. He continues with another quotation in verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And this one you won't find in the prophet Isaiah. In fact, you won't find it in the Bible at all. You'll find it in a Greek poet. This is from his comedy, a guy by the name of Menander. And it may be that this has become proverbial in Paul's time because he wrote when Greek was at its heyday about 100 years prior to the, than this. So I don't know if he's 
familiar with the play or just familiar with the saying, but I want you to notice how surprising it is in this context. Two ways. First, bad company corrupts good morals. On one side, wait, are we really talking about who we associate with? It seems like a deviation. I thought we were talking about doctrine. And then second, corrupts good morals. Wait, I thought we were just talking about belief. Why are you bringing behavior into it? For Paul, both of these things come together in this quote. He says, let us eat, drink, tomorrow, be merry, for tomorrow we die. And he says, don't be foolish. Don't be tricked. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. What is he recognizing here? He's recognizing that the loss of the resurrection in the Corinthian church is only partially due to argument. It's only partially due to this new belief that they find compelling. The real risk in life is not some false teacher for the church in Corinth that's going to lead them astray. It's the normal culture of life. Okay, it's the life that they live. I apologize in advance because this is both a terrible and an effective illustration. But I was thinking this morning, what if we lived in a world where everywhere you went, for every hour of the day, the Macarena was playing on repeat? And what if everybody in their lives, as they went about their day, was constantly going through the motions of the Macarena, okay? You could probably resist. I, I know that I'm the type that I don't like to participate in crowd actions. I don't like to do those things, and I'm totally content to stand on the sideline. But I've never had to do that for an hour. And here's what I imagine. I imagine that on one occasion in the midst of this, that you're going to ask for that somebody to pass the salt, and you're just going to naturally do that. You're not doing the whole thing yet, right? But it's just starting to wear on you. Okay, what Paul is recognizing here is the greatest threat to living the Christian life is what I would call normal life. It's not false doctrine that is bringing the Corinthians to this. It's the distraction of this mentality that says, hey, let's just enjoy life. Let's just do what there is to do. Notice how he continues here. He says in verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor. Now, that's a lot of words. If you have a different translation this morning, it may not say exactly that. But in one word, this is what he implies. The word means sober up. Okay. Now, here's what's striking about this. Maybe you're familiar with the socialist position that religion is the opiate of the people. Right? And what they were recognizing, which I think is a right recognition, that religion can be used by people of power to make the oppressed content. Because there's always next time, right? There's an eternal life to come. You just need to ignore the state of your circumstances and be passive about it because heaven will pay it off in the end, okay? Now, here's the first thing. That is not the Christianity of the Bible. It doesn't lead to passive acceptance of the world we live in. It leads to raging against the norms of human life as it's usually lived. Right? Does the book of Acts record a passivity or an incredible activity? Okay. Tremendous sacrifice, standing against, with boldness, the greatest powers of oppression. Now, granted, the way we stand against those powers of oppression are encoded in the picture of Jesus dying on the cross, so it doesn't look like a bloody overturn. It doesn't look like a revolution. It's something different. But it's just as appropriate to recognize that it's not that religion, religion is the opiate of the people. The people are already stoned. That's what Paul is saying here. He's recognizing that life as it lives, is, or as we live it, has a tendency to put up blinders, 
that we can care about really unimportant things as if they were ultimate things. Just think of how many hours we can invest in professional sports. Okay, now this is not a con- anti-pleasure. I would say that because we have hope in the next life, because there's the reality of the resurrection, because God built the world materially to be enjoyed and ensured our enjoyment of it by sending Jesus Christ so that we would live with the eternal world he's built, I would say that's a pretty good argument for enjoying life. Okay, but, but all of those hours invested, all of those families that have been divided, all of those children that have been neglected, all of those jobs that have been lost for a game. Paul says here, come to your senses, wake up, okay? The gospel is a twofold idea that yes, on one side, this world is going to hell in a handbasket. That the way we, t- we see life, if we're seeing it accurately, actually is relatively pessimistic. The world is broken and so are we. And there's nothing we can do to fix it. But it's also incredibly positive because God who built the world has a plan to fix it in sending Jesus Christ. That he sent him to set things right and invited us into that rightness through faith. And so, we're pessimistic about if life can really be satisfying and we're optimistic about the final end of the story. Whereas the world is optimistic about if life can really be satisfying, contrary to the reality that the richest among us and the most experienced are usually the most depressed. And they're pessimistic about the outcome. Okay. Here's the point. If you are not laying it on the line for Jesus Christ, if you're not putting it out there and sacrificing, if you're not risking it all, and I'm not just talking about reputation, I'm talking about the radical decisions that Christians sometimes make to live beneath their means, to move into the place where the less and the leaser, instead of pursuing the white picket fence and the suburban ideal, to say, no, I want to be present. To say, like that preacher from the 1900s, many people want to live on the outskirts of heaven, but I want to be where I can hear the bells of hell ringing. That whole mentality is at risk through just the natural and normal life. We are always at risk as Christians of drinking the Kool-Aid, of the grasping at straws that is the American dream of settling for something less than God, which will never satisfy. That's what he says here. That's why he says bad company ruins good morals. He doesn't say false teachers ruin good morals. What he recognizes is this, okay? The whole world is like a stream heading in one direction, and the Christian life by nature is swimming in the other direction. When he ties it to the hope of the resurrection, all he's pointing out is the fact that you can't just swim against the tide because you're that kind of fish. If you swim against the tide, it's because you're going somewhere else, right? That's the only thing that makes it worth swimming because let's just recognize it's easier to go with the flow. Let's just recognize that swimming upstream is hard. It's only worth it if there's a destination upstream. It's only worth it if there's a hope. 
And so Paul recognizes you can lose it from both ends. You can lose sight of where we're going, and that can downgrade the reality of your Christian life. But you can also downgrade your Christian life as you live it and lose sight of where you're going. That's why he brings up bad company, corrupts good morals here. And so what does he say? He says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. He says the only reason you're at risk to this false teaching is because you've gotten lax in all of these other areas. Basically, he reaches back into the letter and says, everything else that we've talked about is pressuring this issue. That's where the real problem is. Then he finishes this way. He says, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I don't know who coined the phrase practical atheism, but I found it to be helpful. Okay. Practical atheism is when philosophically you assent to the reality of God, but in your everyday life it doesn't make a difference. The danger that Paul is talking about this morning is a little bit more nuanced than that. It's a little bit more specific. It's not just the question, is God real, is God there, and how would I live if that was true? It's did Jesus really die for us? Is he really alive and available for us in this life? Is he really returning to set all things right? I think many of us would just go down the list and assent to that doctrinally. We go, yes, I believe that Jesus died, buried, and resurrected will return again. But is it visible in your life? Does it change the things you deny and the things you pursue? Does it change the way you make decisions in your life of what you're going to do and not do? Does it weigh into how you deal with your worry and with your risk? Because here's the thing. Jesus is alive. And he will return. And no saint who's lived in the last 2,000 years has ended their life regretting the cost of following Christ. Even before they got past the finish line, even before the reward was in their hands, even before they had the eternal perspective and could see the actual impact of their life, they could die going, this is worthwhile. One of the early Christian martyrs um, was, the, was a bishop of the church in Rome, and this is in the first century. His name was Polycarp. He knew the apostle John. He sat and heard him teach. Just timelining this. And when they asked Polycarp to recant, he said, how can I in this one instance deny Jesus when he's always been so faithful to me? Does that sound like somebody who's just putting it all on the line with the hope that maybe there's something after death? No, in, in his daily dying, he found daily life. The evidence of the resurrection to come in a Christian's life is found as those risks are proven to be worth it. As our priorities are realigned and we go, this is true life. Jesus says something crazy that Paul quotes in this letter. It's more blessed to give than to receive. You only find that at cost to yourself. But it also demonstrates itself as you follow it. 
Jesus says, if somebody offends you and slaps you across the face, turn your other cheek. And that's not just because when you get to heaven, I've got this salve that will make your cheek and your ego feel better. There's life in the death. But that life is radical. And it's incomprehensible. And it only makes sense if Jesus is really alive and if Jesus will really return. Like I said, the resurrection and the hope of heaven is not just about making life bearable. It's about making the Christian life possible and worthwhile. Let's pray. Father, I'm afraid for us as a church, myself included, of this unseen danger of just life as it's lived, of the impression that the world makes on us as we walk through it. I desire for me and for our church what Paul calls us to in the book of Romans when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it is your resurrection and the hope of our future bodily resurrection that renews our mind because it changes the meaning of the story of our lives. It says that there is hope, salvation, beauty, and joy upstream. So swim with all of your might. It says that all those are around us can be saved, can be changed. And so it's worth at great risk and cost to ourselves to serve them in this way, to draw them into your kingdom, to proclaim where your word has yet to be proclaimed, to lay aside our dreams and hopes and expectations. I'm sure this is what Paul meant when he said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I pray that you would live in your church, Lord. Let us not be ashamed of your coming. We ask for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen.